Thanks for joining us today at the Vine Church. We're one church with two locations and reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. If you'd like to partner with us in doing that, you can share this service with others and give by clicking the link below. For now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night Then through the darkness Your loving kindness Tore through the shadows of my soul The work is finished The end is written Jesus Christ, my living hope Who could imagine such great a mercy what heart couldn't fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages spoken deeply. Tell my known, bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever Jesus Christ, my living hope oh, Hallelujah, praise the one who sent me grip on me you have broken every chain there's salvation in your name jesus christ my living hope hallelujah praise the one who set me free hallelujah death has lost its grip on me That sealed the promise Your buried body Began to breathe Out of the silence Roaring lion Declared the grave Has no claim on me Then in the morning That sealed the promise No claim on 
Child of 
guys good it's good to be with you guys especially after being gone last week absence makes the heart grow fonder and I'm more fonder of you Um, I know that was grammatically incorrect but uh, it's great to be a part of a church and a part of a a family uh, of faith where when you are away from them you actually miss them and I miss you guys last week and, uh, and over the past two weeks, I've been out of the office, and, and I, miss, um, I miss this place. So it's great to be back with you guys this week. It's great to be with you in the last week of our series called Listen Up, where we're learning wisdom from one generation to another. And today, we're going to learn a little bit about what life is like. And um, I, I know that probably at certain points in your life, you picked up certain metaphors, uh, maybe similes, if you will, uh, that kind of describe what life is like. And uh, I know there, there were a couple of pop culture kind of pivotal moments in my uh, growth where in my maturation where I kind of learned a little bit what life was like. The first one that I can remember came from a guy named Tom Cochran who uh, wrote a song called Life is a Highway. Uh, for those of you that uh, are, are, are um, you can remember when MTV or there actually used to be music videos, um, here's a clip from that uh, to kind of remind us that life is like a highway. Life is a highway. 
Yeah, so apparently life is like a highway, and it's better with other people, even if you have to abduct them. Um, because I, was, I realized like that clip out of context looks like somebody just grabbed a person and they were going in life, you know, but it's better if they willfully go um, with you. So life is a highway. That was, that was something I learned in high school, and um, my kids learned that early on uh, because of Lightning McQueen and Cars. Uh, Rascal Flats redid that song, and so they learned early on in life that life it is a highway. Um, uh, just a short time after that song came out, uh, a different Tom, Tom Hanks, through a character named Forrest Gump, taught us that there's another metaphor for life. And uh, if you're not familiar with that one, take a look at this. Yeah, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. That, that quote actually came from a Japanese novel called Norwegian Wood, where uh, the author of that explains that life is like a box of chocolates. Sometimes you get the good caramel-filled kind, and then sometimes you get the bad uh, kind that's filled with like toothpaste. You know, And uh, we thought it would be a cool experiment to pass boxes of chocolates along the road, but we didn't want half of you to have a great experience at the Vine, and then the other half not to come back. So um, we didn't do that. The, in the novel, the author says, uh, that you just have to eat the whole box and get along with life. And that's basically what we're called to do. If you Google life is, uh, you'll get the first thing will be box of chocolates. And then you get a long list of other things. Life is like a camera. Uh, life is like a vapor. Life is like a roller coaster. Life is like a hurricane. Apparently, we'll get one of those this week. And life is like a bowl of cherries. That's right. Life is like a lot of stuff. Uh, but according to the Bible, and specifically this guy named Paul, who we've been taking a look at over the past couple of weeks, and a letter that he wrote to a younger generation as he was um, kind of writing his last bit of wisdom right before his death, he describes life in two other ways. He describes life as being a battle, being a fight. How many of you can, can identify with that? It just feels like you're, you're constantly fighting against Maybe sin or maybe circumstances, maybe situations. Maybe you're, you're fighting against another person. Um, over the years of ministry and, and here at the church, I remember uh, talking with one uh, gentleman in our church who was going through a divorce, and, uh, not by his, his own will or volition. Um, it was pursued by his spouse. And, um, and I just kept telling him to, to fight for his marriage, uh, to fight for his marriage. And that's always my wisdom, fight for your marriage. And um, as we were meeting at a coffee shop one day, he said, David, you keep telling me to fight for my marriage, but it just feels like I'm in, in the boxing round. And round after round, I'm just getting pummeled, and I'm ready for the corner to throw in the towel. You know, maybe that's the, the kind of metaphor that you kind of uh, come up with when you think about life. It's like a battle. It's just a, a constant fight. Um, the, the other metaphor that he uses is that life's like a race. How many of you can identify with that? Life is like a race. It just constantly feels like you're running, running, running. I know that's probably the main metaphor that we would use at our house with four kids being pretty active. It just feels like we're, we're um, in this race where we're running from one thing to another thing to another thing. Fortunately, during the summer, it kind of slows down a little bit. Um, but it feels like a race. In fact, you talk to a lot of moms, and they'll say that they feel like life is a marathon. 
And, um, and the only thing about marathons is that they're, like, bad. Like, there, very few people actually think that marathons are... How many of you have run a marathon? How many of you plan to run another marathon? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly, like, that's my point. I mean, you actually pay to run these things, right? That just sounds painful. 26.2 miles. I mean, that's a lot of running and, um, and a lot of training that goes into that. And I would say that life as a race is more like a marathon of sprints um, because there are times where it's just short bursts and you have to be fast-paced and, um, and you don't slow down. And uh, we don't have 26.2 miles. We've got like 76.3 years, you know, of doing that. And so Paul writes to this young minister, life is like a battle. It's like a fight. And life is like a race. And today we're going to discover how we can fight a good fight and how we can finish the race. So if you brought your Bibles or you've got a Bible app, I want to invite you to go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is uh, the book of the Bible or a letter that we have been in over the month of May. And we'll kind of wrap up with today. And we're going to be reading specifically from verses 6, 7, and 8 about how we can fight a good fight, how we can finish the race. Just previous to this and in the previous five verses, Paul actually gives a commendation to the young minister about how he is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's to preach it in a way that, that reproves people, that rebukes people, and that encourages people. And so I just want to invite you to pray for me and to pray for all of our communicators and our preachers and teachers here at The Vine, whether it's on platform or in small groups, that we would be the same type of teachers, that we would teach the gospel, that we would preach in such a way that it would reprove people, that it would rebuke people, and that it would encourage people. But then he gives a commendation about what it means to listen to the word of God. And he says that there will be a day, and I think we could argue that we're living in that day where people won't put up with sound doctrine, but they'll want their ears to be tickled. In other words, they want to be entertained. They want to, to feel good all the time coming out of that. And if they don't feel good coming out of that, then they'll just move on to the place where they can. And so the commendation for us is, as teachers of the word is that we would preach faithful to um, this wisdom from an older generation to the younger, but as listeners of the word, that we would be those who seek the, the good seed, that we would seek the gospel, and that we would present a soil that makes receptive to that, and that we would not be concerned with entertainment value or even having our ears tickled. And that's our prayer for all that would listen to the word. And then he goes into this explanation, and, and you get the sense right here, and if you haven't been with us, the context of this is that he's about to die. Um, he, this is his last words that he's ever written, uh, or at least thought to be. And this is what he says, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, doesn't that sound like a scene from a movie where somebody is about to die? And they're like, I fought the good fight. You got to do it with an accent. You know, I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Yeah. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So in this, you see that he says, hey, life's like a battle. It's like a fight. Life is like a race. And he's fought the good fight. He has finished the race. He's kept the faith, which is what it means to, to fight a good fight, what it means to win the race. It's to Keep your faith. It's to keep your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Because life has challenges. It has circumstances, situations. There's sin that we get fatigued in fighting. Uh, sometimes we get fatigued with the fight that's not related to circumstances and, and situations, but related to people. Uh, we have this race that's just long, and it's, it's got intense sprints at times, and then other places where we can jog, but we're still moving, we're still grinding. I read an article on vacation just kind of randomly that most people don't, don't drop out of marathons at mile one, that makes sense, or the last mile, but in mile 20, because there's still just a little bit longer to go. I mean, sometimes in faith, people drop out. And so how do we fight the good fight? How do we keep the race going and finish the race by keeping our faith? Well, Paul actually gives us the solution to that, and that is to, to pour ourselves out as a drink offering. Notice he did not say to pour yourself a drink offering. And Now, that might sound like the better option if you feel like life is a faith or that you're having a hard time running the race is to pour yourself an offering, but that's not what he says. He says to pour yourself out as an offering. In fact, this is not the first time that he's written these words that he pours his life out as a drink offering. And when you hear that, like contextually, we go, I don't know what that means because we don't live in like this offering context of our faith. So we go back to Scripture to find out what does he mean when he says he pours his life out as a drink offering. And if you're taking notes, there's three kind of important parts of being a drink offering. And in order to discover them, we go back to the first mention. Hey, if you read something in the New Testament that doesn't make sense to you contextually, go find it in the Old Testament the first time that it's mentioned. And that's going to give you the context through which you can understand it in the New Testament as the audience would have known that. Because when Paul writes these words to Timothy and anybody else in the church that would have read these words in the early days, they would have known exactly what it meant because they would have remembered the story from Genesis chapter 35, verse 14, where a drink offering relates to the scent of our lives. Scent of our lives. S-C-E-N-T. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. And the reason that it relates to the scent of our lives is because uh, the Old Testament God followers and even um, Hebrew God followers today, they believe that, that God was this God who could sense things. And just like we operate and exist out of our five senses, God does too. And so our lives were either a pleasing aroma to God or they were a stench to God. And so what is the scent of your life? If you're a middle school boy, I'm not talking about like what you normally smell like. I'm just talking about like how does your, how does your life and your behavior actually please God? Does it please God or is it a stench to God? And when you go back to that first occurrence of a drink offering, it came through a guy named Jacob who had just received a name change to Israel. And if you don't know who Jacob is, Jacob is essentially the grandson of Abraham. And everybody knows who Abraham is because he's a father. He's a father of many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. We do this so much, it's just like boring now at this point. But anyway, he has a son named Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob becomes the father of 12 sons who are the 12 nations of Israel. And when we think of Israel, we think of a nation, but it's actually a person who was once named Jacob. And Jacob has this moment with God where he wrestles with God. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know the story. He kind of fell in this like deep sleep, and in this deep sleep, he wrestles with God. Have you ever felt like you've wrestled with God? 
If you, if you haven't wrestled with God, you probably just haven't lived long enough yet because you'll probably get to a place where you wrestle with God and you wrestle with your faith, where you're, you're in some battle in life, you're in some fight in life, you got some circumstance, some situation, some sin that you're struggling with, and you're like trying to make sense of it all, and so you take that battle from the ground and you take it up to the heavenlies and you start to, to battle God a little bit, you wrestle with God. Or maybe you're running the race and you're just, you're just trying to get through to mile 20 and mile 21 so that you can get to the into that race, and, and, and you take that battle from the ground, and you take it to the heavenlies, and, and you wrestle with God. Well, that's Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God, and he wrestles with God, and then after that, God gives him a new name. He gives him the name Israel. Does anybody know what Israel means? It literally means God will prevail. God will prevail. And, and so, when it comes to those situations in life, those circumstances where it feels like a battle, and it feels like a fight, it feels like a long race that's never going to end, we need to be reminded that God will prevail. And it's okay to wrestle and, and things on this earth, and it's okay to take that straight to God, but God will prevail. God will win in that battle with him, and God will win over that battle in your life on the ground. God will prevail. So Jacob gets this new name, God will prevail. And then in a short amount of time after that wrestling match, God's still having a conversation with him, maybe to convince him that he's been given a new name, God will prevail. And after that second moment where he says, your name is changed, God will prevail. Jacob does something that is pretty familiar contextually. He makes a pillar to God. In, in other words, he takes some stones and he stacks them up. He makes this pillar to God which was something that contextually they would do any time they had an encounter, an experience with God, or made a covenant with God. And so Jacob makes this pillar, but then he does something new. For the first time in recorded history, he pours out wine and oil over that. And the reason that he pours out wine and oil over that is because he wants his side of the covenant, where God will prevail... He wants his side of the covenant, which is obedience to God and to follow God, whatever comes his way, to be one that is a sweet fragrance to God, one that is pleasing to God. And I think it's interesting that when we sing songs like New Wine, I mean, don't you just love that song? You learned it last week. We sang it again this week. We're... we're um, where, where God is pouring out new wine. That means God is doing something new. God is doing something fresh. It's interesting that the first line of that song was what? In the crushing. How do you get new wine? Crushing. In September, you can go over to Chateau Alain and you can see them stomping on the grates. Or you can go watch an episode of I Love Lucy and see her do the same thing. You get this, this, this recognition and, and this picture that in order for there to be new wine, there has to be this squeezing. There has to be this crushing. Charles Swindoll, one of the greatest Christian minds, pastors, and authors of this generation of believers, he says, embrace the crush. Embrace the crush. When you've got these battles and you're running this long race, embrace the crush because it's in that wrestling, it's in that ringing out that there's something new and fresh that God is doing. And if you will be receptive to it, if you will embrace that and then be obedient to that, that will be pleasing to God. 
And we live in a generation, we live in a generation that seems to, to bring pleasure to self. And we even view God as a vehicle or a means to bring pleasure to us. But if we'll just seek to bring pleasure to God, then we will find true pleasure in ourselves. Did you get that? It's different than us making us the object of pleasure. It's different than making God the, um, the vehicle for us receiving pleasure. When we aim to please God, to make our lives a sweet fragrance to God, we will find true pleasure in pleasing him. That's the first mention of that in the Old Testament. The second mention of a drink offering in the Old Testament was just two chapters later when the, the, the people of Israel, uh, those were his descendants, those 12 tribes, the people of God, uh, they were called to sacrifice. And so if you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. The second use of a drink offering was in the context of sacrifice. And so um, the Israelites were given instructions that... Uh, Every once in a while, certain times of the year, there was supposed to be a substitute sacrifice for their sins. Um, sin always requires a sacrifice. And God set up this religious system where they could take a pure and spotless lamb, and that would be the substitute for sacrifice for their sins. In other words, that we didn't have to die. That, that animal could die symbolically for the sins of the world. And then on those sacrifice for sins to pour out a drink offering. Well, the good news for us is that we don't have to sacrifice anything or anyone for our sins any longer. That has been done for us through Jesus Christ. We sang the song, Good News. We're going to sing that again at the end of the service today. We are reminded that God loved us so much that he gave, not just sent Jesus to the earth, but he actually gave him, put him on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That sacrifice has already been done. So since the sacrifice has already been done, what sacrifice remains? Well, it's the sacrifice of our service to God. I mentioned that Paul a couple of times had said, used this phrase, drink offering. Well, the other time that Paul uses this phrase, he's writing to the Philippians, and he actually writes it in the context of his service to one another. And so he talks about being a drink offering, pouring ourselves out in a way that we are actually a, a covering of sacrifice. Um, and he talks about that in the context of marriages. He says uh, to husbands to, to love their wives, you know, sacrificially. I think the, the opposite is true, too. He talks about it in the context of parenting. So parents to child, child to parent, that, that we're to serve sacrificially one another. And then he talks about that among the, the brothers and the sisters of faith, that there's this common um, context where we're, we're, we're called to pour ourselves out. And one of the interesting things about burnout is that so often burnout and kind of fatigue and even depression has been related to just um, kind of being self-focused and self-service. And that one of the best prescriptions for for depression is actually to get out and to serve other people. And that that actually takes focus off self and puts it on others. And that that has the ability to elevate the soul. It has the ability to elevate the soul. It has the ability to get us through the fight. It has the ability to, to help us run with endurance this race of faith to keep the faith. It's sacrifice and service. I mean, I think this is a great weekend for us to be talking about sacrifice of service, Right? I mean, the very fact that we're able to gather when we want to gather, where we want to gather, and worship the way that we want to worship is a result of the service of others. And then you think about the way that the church 
is actually facilitating ministry. It's through the service of others. And so how many people already this morning have you experienced that have sacrificed time and, and sacrificed like energy and self to, to serve you? I mean, people that had prepped this room for you. Have you ever thought about that? That the people that actually prepped this room for you getting here and then actually... Um, serve you in the parking lot and then at the doors and then at cafe or then at kids if you dropped your kids off and they sacrifice a whole lot of time and then the people that sacrifice in production and then the people that sacrifice and and so everything that we get to experience when it comes to experiencing God is a result of the sacrifice of other people this is what it means to be poured out over an offering of sacrifice and service as Paul gives us context in Philippians and I was thinking about the fact that in two weeks we're going to have over 100 kids show up for one week where they get to know that God loves them and wants to be their eternal friend. I mean, that's crazy, but how's that going to happen? Through the sacrificial service of others. And everybody that serves at Camp Kidzu walks out of there with the same experience and the same feeling that they are completely exhausted, but they enjoyed every moment of it. That's what we receive when we're poured out in service for one another. It's the joy and the privilege of people to stay out in the heat of the summer and greet you as you pull into the parking lot. To stand out in the monsoon, which apparently when I came back from Florida this week from a conference I had to attend, I brought the sunshine with me. You can thank me for that. Stand out there in the elements to greet you. It's their joy. It's the joy of people's service where we get to experience God's love. Then the final way that we're to understand pouring our lives out as a drink offering so that we can fight the good fight, run the race and finish, and keep the faith is through the context of the Sabbath. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. The Sabbath. First you have sent, then you have sacrifice, and now you have Sabbath. Sabbath is the word that's given to a day of rest. It comes from a Hebrew word, sabbat. Everybody say sabbat. And sabbat means literally to rest. All of the drink offerings, except for the first one, when they were prescribed by God, were to be done in the context of a place of rest and a day of rest. The place of rest being the promised land, the day of rest being the seventh day, to reflect the fact that we have a God, the creator of the universe, who is all-powerful, doesn't need to rest, but yet rested on the seventh day. Not because he needed it, because we needed a reminder that we need to rest. Not because we can't work seven days in a row. We can all work seven days in a row. We can do that. We can work more days than that. But what God wants us to know that our identity and our value is not in our performance or our production. It's in who God says that we are. And we can't get that unless we rest, unless we have a day of Sabbat, a day of rest, a Sabbath. This is the commandment of God to keep the Sabbath and to make sure that it's holy, that it's set apart. And it's so easy for us to miss our value, miss our identity. And if we miss our value and our identity, when it comes to the fights that we'll fight and the race that we'll run, we will not win. We will be overcome. But if we will allow ourselves to rest and understand that God's value for our life is not in what we do, but who he says we are, 
And we'll be able to fight. We'll be able to run. We'll be able to keep the faith. It's in what you do and what you rest and how you rest. Uh, even fighters. Fighters fight for a few minutes and then they rest. Marathon runners, they run like crazy during the week, but then they rest. They'll, in fact, get to a long run just a couple of weeks before they compete in the actual marathon competition, and then they'll trail off just a little bit to give their body rest. They'll say that when you run those 26.2 miles, you've got to be able to even rest in the work. You've got to find a rhythm of breathing to where your mind is at rest so that you can push through mile 20. You've got to rest. Now, my family and I went on our first vacation as a family in over two years. And I got an applause um, at the beginning of the service when I introduced myself and said that I was on vacation. I'm still not sure if that's because I was away or because I went on vacation. I bet it's because I went on vacation. I hope it's not I bet, but I hope. I hope it's because I went on vacation with my family. Um, And that was an applause, but actually it should have been booing. It should be, you know, jeering, not cheering. And the reason is because it took me so long to get my family back on vacation. Like there's, there's the reality that as people and as families, we need that rest. And it's only when we're away from the work that we can actually find that, that rest. And when we're resting, God can speak into us what seeds have been sown and what seeds have been planted and grow that. It's the same reason why it's in rest that your body repairs itself. You get stronger physically after a tough workout in the rest, not in the workout. You get smarter when you sleep. At least that's what we tell our kids. It gives, your, it gives all those like, things that you push during the day, those neurons, and have time to rest, and you actually get smarter during the rest. It's in rest that you press more into who God has created you to be and who he says that you are, and that is the only way for us to fight the good fight, to win the race. So this morning... Where do you need to pour yourself out as an offering? Is it in obedience to the, just to the, the covenant that you made with God? Where no matter what comes your way, you'll say, God, you will prevail, and I'll be obedient to your instruction to see you prevail in my life and in my circumstance. Is it in sacrificial service to others? Maybe you're ready to step into serving someone through the context of the church or to serving through the context of the church to those outside the community. Or maybe you just need to go back to commandment to keep the Sabbath, to make it holy, to be a better husband and father than I am and to take your family on vacation. Some of you are saying, amen. Where do you need to be a drink offering? That's the only way that we can fight the good fight, run the race, and keep our faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes will not perish, they shall have eternal
on the cross I shall hold to God alone for his love has salvaged me oh his love has rescued me for God so Yeah. 